Bo O'Reilly is the co-curator of the Rhinoceros Theater Festival and a frequent contributor to This American Life. He is a founding member of the Curious Theater Branch and the Crooked Mouth Band. In addition to authoring plays, more than 80 original works, as I mentioned, he also works as an actor. In February of 2014, he curated and performed um, four short plays by Samuel Beckett for the Poetry Foundation. Bo has produced, curated, and directed work at the Museum of Contemporary Art, the Steppenwolf Studio, and Lynx Hall. He has been named one of Chicago theater's most influential more than half a, half a dozen times. He is currently a professor of playwriting at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. Please join me in welcoming him now. Russell the bones. What do you say? Not on? I think it's not on me. Now it is. Can you hear me now, sir, in the back? All right. Let's just act like that. <laughs> Russell the bones. Russell the bones. Let the wind do the berry. And the crows make it home. Rustle the bones, rustle the bones. Let the wind do the bearing, and the crows make it home. The ladies visit Mac's place, they dust up the shells. They leave a pile of lovely where there's not much else. The rain falls hard at Mac's place, it wets up the windows. It questions Mac's character and whistles wet his baby toes. Rustle the bones, rustle the bones. Let the wind do the bearing and the crows make it home. Rustle the bones, rustle the bones. Let the wind do the bearing and the crows make it home. While Mac wants to shout out, I'm the phantom engineer. I'm leaning on the train whistle so everyone can hear. And Mac has these mice dreams, dreams without much thought. Shrieks from around the room when the mice get caught. Rustle the bones, rustle the bones. Let the wind do the burying and the crows make it home. Rustle the bones, rustle the bones, let the wind do the bearing and the crones make it home. The moon bombards Matt's place, it causes his limbs to tremble, wakes up his hips to shake, dig deep and reassemble. And Matt's lacking up now, he's closing the door, he's warbling the song the one you wanted before. You know the one. Where romance wins the day And no one loses out or gets a drag away Rustle the bones, rustle the bones Let the wind do the burying And the crows make it home Rustle the bones, rustle the bones Let the wind do the burying And the crows make it home
bardzo dbałem. So if you were staring at the sheet, you would see where I scratched out a couple of verses, and this morning hand wrote in a few different verses, trying out the rhythm, trying out the meter, like the little images to surprise me as well as tell the story. So this is a song, it's a recent song for me. I write songs usually with musicians. I'm pretty much the lyricist, although every once in a while I cheat the system and sing something loudly so that the musician has to play it. Um, but these, it's a set of lyrics that I've been working on for the past few months. And the project was, I was doing this, oh, retrospective in, in the winter of my work, and I had made a bunch of songs in the past with one writer. And between the two of us, we had written 80 songs together, something like that. But we stopped working together about 10, 15 years ago. And that group of songs is usually in my circle, the songs that people remember me by. They want those songs. They think of those songs. They, they ask for those songs. And for me, love those songs, but they're a while back, you know, they're 15 years back. So I've been working with this, this band for about four or five years. Um, there are five of us in the band, and everybody writes in that band. So I decided that I would just invite, oh, six or seven musicians that I like to collaborate with me on songs for that particular show. So the retrospective would have all these old things that somebody else would sing, and then the new work that I would make with different musicians. So that's what I did. And so that song comes from a collaboration with a, a pianist from Madison named Stephanie Rerick, who's a very good writer. And when she structured it, she got it down to sort of one chorus, three verses, and a lot of beautiful piano solos. But you may notice that I don't play the piano. You don't know that, but it's true, I don't. And I do play the cane, but not quite up to the cane today. And you know, so I'm probably not going to play the cane. And usually the cane is a little quiet in a large room. So, uh, so when I sing it, I stretch the choruses, I play with the choruses. And then what I found, after singing it for a couple of months now with the band, is the band is really good at just chiming in. So now there's four or five voices on the choruses, and that's lovely. So for me, that's part of a process that I have of finishing work, where it's finished over time. It begins with a glow, with an idea, and then it gets worked on. And I'm pretty brave about just showing it to people. Here it is, it's pretty raw pretty finished, I don't know what it is yet, I'm going to show it to you. And then I keep working on it, keep working on it. So, so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to show you a few examples of that that I've done over the past few years. And then we can talk about the methodology a bit and some of that will come dripping out. I'm a little not well today, so I'll keep the hugging and the kissing afterwards to just a minimum. <laughs> so if you need to hug and kiss, look to each other, stay away from me, I'll give you the flu. And I probably won't bound about, which I normally do. So maybe by the end of the week I'll be bounding about, but I'm not going to bound about today. Um, I started this play, the play is called Sex and Minutia. I started this play two years ago in Iowa City when I was here for a workshop. I was teaching, and I wrote one scene. I wrote it at the coffee shop. I wrote it in one sitting, probably about 45 minutes. And I liked it, and I looked at it. And then I got very busy looking at y'all's work, and I didn't think about it at all for the rest of the summer. But I had the notebook. Here's the notebook. 
I had this. I had the notebook with me, and uh, I kept it around in my bag. I never looked at it at all until I came back to Iowa City last summer. And the first day, I went back to the same coffee shop, and kind of deliberately, as a little prompt to myself, I opened it up to that scene, and I read the scene to myself, and I liked the scene. And then I sat down and I wrote every day that I was here. And for various reasons, I was here for about two weeks, almost three weeks last year. And I had a lot of downtime in the middle. And so I was able to write a lot. So by the time I walked away from Iowa City, I had a play that read out loud in about two hours and 10 minutes. Now, these days in the theater, that's pretty long. And I'm comfortable with that. I don't mind at all starting with a long script. Um, but I had this play, Sex and Miniature was called, and it came out of that tiny little beginning. And in the beginning of the play, two people are sitting, and at first I didn't know what their genders were, I didn't know much about them, except that they were friends, very familiar with each other. And they're talking about all the people in their lives that they've known who have been named Griff, G-R-I-F, Griff. And apparently there were several of them, which was surprising to me, I never knew anybody named Griff, but these two characters did. So they had this conversation about Griff, and in the course of the conversation, they had to sort out which Griff they were talking about. And it turned out, in the course of that storytelling, that they had met at one of the Griff's funeral, and they were the only two friends that showed up for Griff's funeral. So they both had to speak at his funeral, and they did it very awkwardly, and that meant that they had a connection with each other, and then they fell in love and they had a relationship that lasted 30 years. So the play is this 30-year relationship that starts as a love, it starts as an almost marriage, falls apart in the middle, and then continues. When I end up doing the show, I ended up cutting most of the monologues in favor of these short, tight little physical scenes, but I kept the monologues at the beginning and at the end and sort of central places to do the storytelling. So I'm just gonna read a section from one of the monologues, and it takes place a week after they've met at the funeral. The character speaking is the character Turnaround, and Turnaround is at this time probably about 27, something like that. She's a woman, and she's on the phone, and she's telling the story on the phone, so I think the rest of it should tell itself. Don't fall asleep. I want to talk to you. You could open the window. Well, you're four stories up. You live in Iowa City. Everything is always safe there. No, 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 I wasn't done. Listen, listen to the best part. Right, last night, I could feel us coming out of the dark. I see us popping out, like, like the dark was a pop-up book that you were surprised that it would open. Right, right, that is what it looked like. You always get this stuff. Like when you're three or four, and the book, the paper. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's better than magic. I can feel it. I can see it. It's us. We're, we're emerging. There we are, popping out of the dark. Me bouncing in my step, my heels never touching the ground. My face up, my eyes flashing. My hair like, like a haystack of sticks, twigs, nesting up, straight up. I think now I was never more beautiful than I was last night. <laughs> yeah, I know. What a thing to say, right? But you know, sometimes you gotta go in, and you know you gotta go in. Well, well, thank you. 
again? Well, the guy. Well, he walks like this is something to get through, an urgent thing. Yeah, but get through it. He's trying to say something. He's looking down and, and uh, so, so focused, I think. His hand, the left, no, no, the right one. He's on that side, on the right side. That hand might touch my hip, my upper thigh, or maybe it's my own hand touching my own hand, touching my own upper thigh. I'm surprised that I've got it going on so much. I'm feeling the curve of my own muscle with the light tip of my long finger. I can't tell. I mean, someone is touching someone here. And there's this electric feeling of something, something happening there, physical. We stand on the edge of what turns out to be a parking lot, huge, empty space against the harsh yellow-blue of the overhanging lights. We must look tiny, small, I remember thinking this, against all of this. And then we are moving him. He knows where we're going. I can tell by the way he walks. Without looking ahead, so intent is he on seeing me. I have no idea where I am. I've never been here before. And I remember this only a few minutes before, well, I, I, I felt fear. I, I didn't know where I was, and I didn't know him, you know. Fear. You know, just a whiff of it. Like a trace of garlic on the plate or on the spoon when it's custard time. It seemed that it would take forever, or at least an hour, to get across the parking lot, but we flew across it in no time. Him, he was talking. He was talking right to me, earnest, fierce. We'd been to a film. And he hated it so much, the way the woman had been treated by the camera, by the audience, by the director, I mean the actress. And I'm thinking, isn't this great? This guy who cares about the ladies, but he was shouting almost, and I think, I can't listen to this all the time. I mean, if we live together, I like the way his eyes flash, the green there, the light against the black in his eyes, and the way his hands sputter in the air, like there's this bridge showing this connection from one thought to the next. If he could just show me that with his hands and not talk so much, maybe he should calm down. I could calm him down. And then we were on the other side of the parking lot by the aquarium. And the aquarium is gleaming its glass, its high walls, its windows of high walls, and there's a ledge. And he says, a ledge, just jump up on the ledge. And the ledge, the ledge was along the window like, like it was a secret ledge, a private place. And he, his whisper has this edge, it has this slight metallic clank in it, like the electric fan before it breaks, the one that we had in the attic that terrible hot summer. Do you remember? No. No one ever fixed it. No. It just stopped working. But remember when it was working? I could feel the air move, but you knew the blade would be spinning off anytime soon now. That's what his whispers are like. I know. That is weird when people remind you of machines. I know that. I jumped up on the ledge and I thought, this is weird. If he is weird, I can move quickly. I can keep my balance and I can lope ahead. I am quick, I am graceful. I like my body. And he's awkward, he's clumsy for the ledge. And I don't know how I knew that, the way he lurched around when he came out of the movies, I guess, when he was so mad about Woody Allen. It was Woody Allen, he shouted, Woody Allen. Like Woody Allen should make anybody mad. Why did we even go to that movie? He shouted. And now I'm on the legend. It's easy to, to move with him clanking and 
lurching and harumphing behind me. And we turned a corner in the building, me first, but he had already seen, look, look, there they are. A dozen or more shapes breaking the surface of the water at the same time, black and silver in the light. The light was on. What? The aquarium. Turned love the light, yeah. Well, beneath the water, in the pool, like under it. Right. And the whales, they were whales. And their heads high up above the dark water, they, they were jumping, and their bodies were impossible. They big, and the tails, they, oh, they were up, and then they were gone 30 seconds, and then, right, oh, much bigger than dolphins. Like freight cars with fins, maybe. Each punching out of the water. I don't know. Really, for the sheer joy of it, I guess. And that's what I thought. It was after hours. They were way after hours. There was no audience to gasp or stare or, oh, how, how, how are they doing that? They were just doing it. Diving, rising, diving again. And I realized that I had stopped moving. I was just watching. I was just seeing what I was seeing when Dimitri, well, that was the man, Dimitri. That was the man I was with. He bumped into me, and his arms encircling my waist to catch his balance. He's clumsy. I think you're right, yeah. Although I, I don't think I knew that yet, but well, how did you know that? <coughs> oh, you're so amazing. You're so intuitive. Yes. Up, he said. Let's go up and see better. And he whispered it harsh like he had this rusty phlegm in his teeth. Up! And I looked for something in front of me, a, a ladder or a handhold, maybe, before he clambered up the tree behind this dark and huge, an oak tree. I wanted to think, but, but I don't know oak trees. I mean, well, no, we didn't have them in the yard. No, I, I don't remember any oak tree. And a man and a woman, no, no, a girl and a boy and an old oak tree with wild whale animals dancing below them. We never had that. I would hope he would put his hand on me again. I'm thinking this, but he's already four feet above me. He's gasping and he's hissing, come on, come on. My name is Turnaround. I whisper it loudly, Turnaround. Wanting him to know, to remember my name. Even though it's such an odd name, who would forget it? What, he said, not getting it. Who did I, he think I was, Nancy or Clarice? Turn around, I said. And then too loudly, turn around and I had to climb fast to get as high as he was. He landed in the crook of the tree. What, he said. So that's that. <laughs> and the monologue goes on, and they're in the trees, and they're on different parts of the tree, and through the course of watching the whales, the lights finally go out, they sit there and they make love in the tree in a very interesting way. And that begins the relationship. And at the end of the conversation, the person that's listening on the other end of the phone has fallen asleep. And she says, Mom, Mom, are you still there, Mom? Because she's been telling her mom that story. So I had an interesting process with the making of that play for myself in that I followed a little trail that began here and I finished it and then I went back and I read it aloud in a series of readings with various actors. In the course of that, I started to cut it. And then I cast the play with 
one actor that I've worked with a lot, Judith, and an actor that I respect, but I've never really worked with him before, who's a very good playwright himself, David is his name. And so we started this process of making the work together in rehearsal. We would rehearse once a week or so for, we did this work for about, oh, six months for about once a week, and then we upped it to about six times a week to pick it up um, before we performed it. And uh, through the course of it, we made a lot of edits and changes. And both Judith and David are playwrights themselves, and they're the actors up there trying to make it work with their voice, with their body, finding their way. And they would say, can we cut this and this and this and this and this? And I'd say, yeah, well, we can cut this and this and this, but not this, we need this, we gotta keep this. And so the, the shape of the play changed and, and became very collaborative in the editing process, which was really unusual and very nice. I like that. I tend to, when I make a play, I tend to really listen to actors and make the cuts myself. I don't really want the director to make the cuts or the actors, I want to make them myself. But these two were very fervent. I've got to memorize these 20 pages of monologue. Can we cut it down to these 17? And so in the process of that, I let go a lot. I had to just keep giving over, letting go, stepping back, and then stepping forward when something was important to do. So in the finishing of the process, that story that you just heard the beginning of was removed entirely from the play. So we lost the whales, we lost the aquarium, we lost the first date, it was referenced. And then I took that piece, which when it's complete, runs at about 17 pages. I took that piece and I did it with a completely different actor who was quite, who was quite a bit younger than Judith and played her as if she was just a younger version of the same character and then they were both done in the festival. So that was fun to do and I've not done that before. In the process of the festival, yeah, our festival usually features a specific artist, and, and this year they decided to feature me, and I was very uncomfortable with that because it's my festival, but everybody else insisted on it, and so we did it. Um, and so, and in the past, what normally happens is that we feature a writer and we do all his past, his or her past work that we think is great. And I said, well, I can't do all this past work. I, that's too embarrassing, I'm not gonna do that. But I will do all this brand new work. So I wrote seven plays in the course of the year um, and completed them in time for the festival. And then with casting and directing and da-da-da, we ended up doing five of them and three monologues. So that was very interesting to delve that deeply into a process for that long period of time of your own work. And I'm sure that you fiction writers do that all the time. I had written a play about three years ago called Evanston, which is over there. And I live in Rogers Park, where Evanston is, over there. And that's where the title came from. And we did, um, did it in a little theater on the corner in Rogers Park, where if you walked out the door, you'd point straight at Evanston. So that was the beginning of that play, it was the title. And in the process of the making of that play, I had written and written and written and written, and I ended up with six and a half hours. Six and a half hours and about on stage, and about 12 central storylines. And so we started that process of the making of that play, and I ended up not wanting to spend that much time with all those people, so I started pulling them up, pulling them up, pulling them up, pulling them up, and ended up with a three-act play that we then did, and it, it performed. And then I had these big chunks of story, big chunks of story, of character, of development, that I had made specifically for Evanston and hadn't completed it. I hadn't completed it.
completed the process. So in the process of making these seven plays, I used three of those. And I shaped them and altered them and changed them. I got them down to like 45 minute plays, which for me is almost a vignette, frankly. I like long plays. Um, and then, so those were some of the plays that were done. So I'm going to do a little scene from one of those plays for you know, it's a pretty short scene. And I'm going to play both of the characters. So there are two characters in the scene. And Carl Lamprey is one of them. He's, a, he's an older Chicago actor, playwright, kind of a curmudgeon guy, kind of crabby guy. He doesn't really like anybody. He smokes too much. Not me at all. I don't smoke at all. Um, and, the, and, and his tech, the person that is working with him, is a character named Doyle. So in the world of the play, Carl is on stage rehearsing the scene. Doyle is out there running the lights. And so in between the lines, there will be these little blackouts, which you'll just have to imagine happen. And so here we go, and the lights come up. Go fuck yourself! The lights go out. How was that, Mr. Doyle? That, that was jarring. It was too much. How can go fuck yourself be too much? There's nothing to cut. Well, the whole sentiment is off-putting. Let's go again. Lights up. Lights up, lights up. Why haven't you fucked yourself? Lights up. Well, better? Better, Mr. Doyle? You're here for response? Respond? That was longer, Carl. It was more of a question, which is <laughs> jarring, though. It was, it's off-putting. I'm just putting that out there. Longer. How could it be longer? It was an explosion. A real explosion. The words. There were more words. And you hate that. Everybody hates that. Words. We'll go again. Mr. Doyle, the lights. The lights, but... Lights, lights! Lights up. Fuck! Lights up. That was better. <laughs> I, I think it was, but but what? I I don't know why it was better. <laughs> why? Why? Who cares, Mr. Doyle? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> the play was called Go Fuck Yourself, and it got a lot of press because the title. The title is what sold that play. Um, and I'll just do one more little because, I don't know, it's fun to do it, so I'll do it. So this is, this is a little bit later, and so um, Lamfrey has been rehearsing in the theater, he's just been rehearsing his line, and he goes out for a cigarette break, and he's rehearsing on the corner, and uh, he runs into someone. Go fuck yourself, go fuck yourself, go fuck yourself, go fuck yourself. Mr. Lamfrey? I wanted to tell you how much I, oh, oh I'm sorry, go fuck yourself. I, I'm, I'm so sorry you're rehearsing, I'm interrupting you. I was admonishing that Lexus driver that ran over my toes. My toes are large and ancient with the eyesight of Oedipus. A semi-sibulent preschooler would know not to chew on the curb and eviscerate the crosswalk. 
If what I speak is true, and I do so always, that Lexus driver is a drooling fool who should be schooled with a cattle prod. As for rehearsal, are you saying that I need it? No, no, I, I, I wasn't saying that. I, I, I thought you were fabulous last night. Well, I'm glad for you. I'm glad that your ability to recognize quality has not been diminished by your unfortunate taste in men's clothing. <laughs> I was fabulous. That is a good word for it. But enough about me. What did you think of my performance? <laughs> that, that, that's a joke, isn't it? Sadly, yes, as old as Porky's pig. And the best I can offer on my lunch hour. I'm not here to entertain you now, am I? Is there no end to the incubus appetites of the masses? Or are you the sandwich boy? Come to deliver my liverwurst on ride. No, no, I'm a writer myself, and I, I, I was just so pleased by what you did up there, how you paired the language like a fish. What? Say, paired the language like a fish, that I might get something out of this exchange. Well, you, you did do that, it was amazing. Are you blowing opium smoke up myself, felching ass, sir? What? Are you filling my jockstrap with warm honey? It's a simple line. Go fuck yourself. Anybody can say it. I say it all the time. If you are not the sandwich boy, sir, what do you want? I just wanted to tell you, I've seen a lot of your work, and you're Eric Shaney, aren't you? I, no, no one. You are, I know you, sir. Well, quote, Carl Lamfrey's first meeting with the luscious Gwendolyn Tome is like two noodles smacking in an empty pasta dish after someone has devoured all the meatballs. So devoid of any real energy that one wonders whether Mr. Lamprey has the testosterone to enter on cue, let alone sweep Miss Tone off of her feet. A bad play made worse by a bad casting decision. Mr. Lamprey, I'm afraid, would do well to quit the theater altogether and take up something more within his reach, like watching paint dry, say. Unquote. You wrote that, sir. That wasn't me. I'm new in town. Nonsense, sir. You can't play the sad sack here. Not when your viciousness precedes you like the swollen member of the newcomer in the jerk-off circle at the steam bath. <laughs> it was my first review. And I was young. I was, I was trying to make an impression. And now you are old. And you failed. You made no impression. Except, sir, except on me, for I have hated you for two decades and more. Really, was it that bad? I didn't think it was that bad. Oh, it was, sir. Uh, do you see these scars up and down my wrist? 
What if I told you I read that review and I went looking for you with a butcher knife and when I couldn't find you in my shame, in the impetigo of my failure, I took the blade to myself, flashing up and down and howling like a bull cow being neutered under a full moon. If I told you that, sir, would you even now writhe with culpability or would you, sir, pit your piss-spitting pen to paper again with this man's crucifixion as your call? I, I am sorry. I didn't know that it happened. I, I am, I am, I, I, I am weeping with regret. That's good. Watering the firmament with your ignominy. The world is a better place for it, sir. Did that really happen, the self-slashing and the shame? Not at all, sir. You are a flea, and I am a beast of the wilderness. And I responded to you as such. I swatted away your half-roasted opinions, and I rode my career onward to become the glory that you have just witnessed on the stage. You, you asshole. I just complimented you on your work. Well, bravo, sir. It was three minutes long. Anyway, so that's that one. <laughs> and um, you know, my, my son is a very good actor. In some ways a better actor than me, which is hard for me to admit. I'm very good, but he's better. Um, my son came to see the play after I'd been doing it for a little while. And I must admit that I tried really hard to get somebody else to play Carl Lamfrey. I didn't want to spend that much time with him. He's such an obnoxious man. But I couldn't, so I ended up playing him. And my son came and he said, you know, you're, you're really doing your father up there. You know that. I said, oh, it hadn't occurred to me. He said, yeah, you're really doing your father. And my father was a very big presence in Chicago theater. He was a he was a he was a Shakespearean actor primarily, and he was the old school of actor where he drank a lot after the shows and he chain smoked cigarettes, um, and he did all of Shakespeare at one time or another in the big old place. I'm sorry. Talking about James O'Reilly. I am. Yeah. Okay. Do you know him? Oh yeah. Yeah, he's my dad. And my father once said to me when I was first writing plays, he said, "Well, how's it going?" I said, fine, I finished the first act. And he said, well, anybody can write a fucking first act. <laughs> <laughs> There's some truth to that. So, I don't know, how am I doing on time? Am I okay? You have about 20 minutes. Okay, great. So I'm gonna do just do one tiny more thing. It's not that tiny, it's tiny enough. It's just a little difference in tone. And then I'll take some questions and answers. Now this is from a piece, um, that I wrote for Ira Glass's show, and it never got done on his show. Um, he and I worked on the piece quite a bit for about a year, and the, the goal of the piece kept changing. So they, he called and said, do you have a, any pieces in work about theft on the job? And I said, yes, I do. So I wrote a piece about theft on the job. And he said, well, I don't really want a piece about that anymore. Do you have any pieces about men getting along well? And I said, yes, I do. And so I, gave him the same piece and just emphasized men getting on. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, I don't really want that piece anymore. Do you, 
I really like it when you talk about your family. Do you have any pieces about your family? And I said, yes, I do. And I kept getting paid. I got paid more for that piece than any piece I've ever made. Um, and it never got done on the show. But we spent a lot of time talking about it, which was pretty interesting. And then eventually I did it on the stage. Uh, I'm supposed to be doing, I am doing a show with the Poetry Foundation when I get back home in the beginning week of September. And we were doing a piece out of the poems of Anne Sexton, which was really fun for me and Judith, working on these Anne Sexton poems. And in the last minute, they just said, you know, we really just don't have the rights. You can't use the material. And I said, but we've been working on this for some time. What can we do? And we have the contract. We need the money, da, da, da. And he said, well, just do whatever you want. <laughs> Never a good idea with me. Um, so what I'm doing now with this piece is cutting it down and I'm cutting it down to just the workers working together section of it and getting rid of all the family. Um, there's still some theft, but you probably won't see the theft. And so these guys have been, they're furniture movers. There's three of them, the narrator and Johnny Mullen, the wheel man is the man's name, the wheel man. And they've been working all day and drinking. And this is the end of their day. Me and my friend Johnny Moe and the Wheelman, we all agree our boss is a chump in his casual gym wear, driving that shamrock green sob of his. The boss is a real money guy and we hate him for it. And the real pleasure tonight, now that the work is done, is to think of ways to get back at the boss for giving us jobs and being such a chump about it. So we're sitting drinking in the peanut shell, an ugly little bar that features cheap beer and peanut shells on the floor. You eat the peanuts and you throw the shells on the floor. That's the charm of the place. <coughs> We've been drinking for some hours. It shows on us that and being worn and haggard from moving furniture for 12 hours straight. Anybody who walked by and looked in would spot us for what we are, heat up and ready for trouble. But at the peanut shell, no one ever looks in. It's quiet right now. And we've all three of us talked it out. But I notice it, I mean, I feel it. The quiet. I'm part of this. This wasted shared silence. I'm in it. The neon Budweiser sign crackles, buzzes, electric. And the wheel man slurps his beer like a child, wishing he had a straw, so he could think about that. Suction and its function, scientifically or otherwise. And my friend Johnny Moe announces it, we're gonna get the boss's sofa bed. And he's smiling, and the wheel man moves like an owl. The boss's sofa bed is sitting in the basement of the mover house, and Johnny and the wheelman, they got that sofa bed as a tip on a long move. But when the customer mounts the check for the move, the boss blamed Johnny and the wheel. And he grabbed the sofa for himself, planning to give it to his girlfriend. Johnny Moe knows that that just isn't right. So with the three of us, it takes no time to get that sofa bed up and out on the street. And the three of us could move anything. It's late now, not much traffic. We were suddenly very drunk the night air hits us. John and the wheel man, they know what to do. 
they know how to fuck some shit up without talking about it. So one on either side of the sofa, they've got the front and I grab the back. And we head straight out into the middle of the street where we set it down, <clears throat> aware of the bright lights of us being seen in them. So we run hard back to the corner and Johnny Moe was giggling this high-pitched giggle and the three of us hiding against the wall of this doorfront, peeking around in a one, two, three line of wide-eyed cartoon bad kids. And the first car smacks the sofa bed spins it around. The driver's face is panicky and mad as he twists the steering wheel, and the second car avoids the couch, honking at it like it's a cow, and will move out of its way if he just gets its attention. But the third one hits it straight on. The sofa flying around, it's the fourth car that gets brutal, slowing down, picking it up on his fender, pushing it half a block before gunning the motor. So that sofa bed lifts up in the air, and it's shaking like an animal before smacking down. The fourth car does a U-turn, comes back, smacks it again, reverses, smacks it again. The driver stays bright and crazy with the pleasure of it. And the wheel is shouting, velocity, angles of destruction, you understand the scope of destruction. And by morning, the sofa bed is busted and beaten, springs showing, and guts flying. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> You know, it's a good, good process. You know, I really like to work with, with others, and I like to work alone. And so I often, um, I often after, you know, I'll do three or four projects along by myself, and then I'll make a point to collaborate with someone. When I collaborate with someone, you look at the work differently, you hear different voices, the discussion is clearer in some ways. Um, I was a really good editor. He is just really good at asking the questions that make you fill in the blank, go further. So, and he's always been with me good at getting me to write from the first person. Um, before I worked with him, I never wrote in first person. I always wrote characters and always with some distance so that I could look at them. But he really pushed me to write from the internal. Um, so that, that's been a good collaboration. So now I think I'll just stop reading and, and let you guys ask questions if you have some. You certainly don't have to have any. Yes, sir. Uh, uh huh. I, you know, I'm of a pretty different school than that. So, I mostly work with peers. So I'm, I'm in a very lively theater scene. I've been in this, the French Chicago scene for about 30 years, and so I work with a lot of other playwrights. I'm in a company with eight playwrights. So I tend to. It tends to be, I've got something, what do you got? You got something? I've got something. Um, the difference, probably the exception for me mostly, has been my work with Ira, where Ira will really have a lot of opinions, a lot of, of notions of what to cut, what to change. He's always looking for cuts. He always wants it radio friendly. So, um, so no, I've never paid for an editor. I've never done that. Uh, never done that. Yes? Um might be too simplistic, but I wonder, like, how did you choose plays or drama as your form, as opposed to some other um, expression? I'm very impatient. <laughs> yeah, that's where it comes from, is that I, I didn't really start writing at length until I was 30. I did theater, I did rock and roll, I did other stuff. Um, and, but, but then when I started to write, what happened, I'll tell you honestly, is I sobered up. So I was a drunk, a drug user, 
And then when I was 30, I sobered up and I started to write immediately. I had all this energy to write. And I was impatient to get to it. I felt like there was, um, oh, time had been wasted. I'd always wanted to write and I'd never really done it. And so I felt like if I'm going to do it, I better get to it. And writing for the theater, I'd grown up in the theater. My parents do theater and most of my friends did as well. And so I was always around it. And I found, I went to see a couple of places that were really weird and new, strange, very strange. And I thought, these weird motherfuckers are doing this. I can do this too, pretty literally. And I sat down and wrote the first play in just a, a burst. And then I was lucky enough that I was quickly able to form a company with like-minded writers who were younger than me for the most part. And then I, for the next three or four years, um, made a new play about once every two months. Um, so it was very much learning on your feet. So that's how I decided. I wanted, I wanted to see the result. I wanted to see what it was. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the best reason, but that was mine. Anybody else? Yes? When you consider a project finished, does it have to go on stage for you to be done with it? Or when are you done? That's a really good question. I was thinking about it this morning because all of this stuff, yes. Um, yeah, what she asked, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get off the mic. Um, what she asked is when do you finish a, when do you consider a project finished? And I was just thinking, do you have to see it on the stage for it to be finished? And I was just thinking this morning that in some sense, none of this work feels quite finished to me. I do have work that feels finished. Hmm, what's the difference? I feel satisfied by it, I guess. Uh, a piece gets to a place where I'm, that's all I can do with this piece to make the piece better, and I'm satisfied with that. Because of the theater thing, I, that usually happens after a performance or a series of performances where I, where I think that we've really realized the work. And so it feels complete in that way. Um, so taking it to the stage is part of it. Yeah, it is, it is for me definitely part of it. But, but I also have revisited work. Yes, sir, in the back. Um, I can appreciate how collaborating can kind of force you to, uh, you know, have any conclusions. But you know, most of us are, are sitting here staring at a piece of paper or a computer screen. Yeah. Do you have any tricks that you use to, to, to reach closure so that you can finish something? I have tricks to that, yes. Um, one of the tricks that I have is reading aloud to people and hearing back from people what's working and what's not. Um, one of the tricks that I have is starting over. <laughs> so what I did, um, so I was doing this yesterday in the class when we were writing in the class. I took a scene, I wrote a scene in Kansas about two months ago. And I didn't, for various reasons, my mom's in the hospital, my partner's when the hospital only got home, a lot of health problems. I hadn't been able to get back to writing. So I knew the scene was there. I liked the scene, it was a different scene. So what I did yesterday was I sat down and I started to write the scene again. And I used the original version, the notes, the memory of it, to write the scene again. And so somewhere in about, I don't know, about an hour of me, I entered into the process so deeply that now I was writing something new. I've done that a lot of times. So that if I'm stuck, I go to the place of stuck, and I just almost physically rewrite it exactly as it was, and then something changes, something alters. I find that I'm altering tense, I'm altering words, I'm altering language. Um, so that would be my advice, is you can always go back to the beginning to start again. Um, there's other things, but yeah, that's the first one that comes to mind. Yes? Do you ever start at the end? 
I have known the end a few times and so I've written the end first. So yes, um, that's for me almost magical when that happens, when I, I get the ending full before I've done the work. And then I sit down and write the end and then I write to it. So yes, I have done that, probably about five or six times. And that's very helpful for finishing, obviously, because that's the finishing. Um, I'm not sure that I have the same worry that everybody has that finishing things is so difficult. I think it's really important, um, but I think what is much more difficult actually is starting things. And, and if you start, and if you, if you are true to your school, <laughs> you know, if you, if, you, if you follow the form that you're working in, if you pay attention to it, if you care about it, if you have passion for it, the likelihood is that you're going to create a bunch of work. And so whether that finishes it or not is another question. I think that we, get, we tend to, as writers, we tend to get very, very nervous about certain things, and finishing is one of them. That as a group writers are very, is it done, is it complete, is it publishable, da 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 da. I think those things are the internal editor saying, you're not good enough, it's not good enough, it's not gonna happen. So those things get in the way. So I do a certain amount of fooling the internal editor, where I will just forget what you all said. <laughs> what the professor said or what the notebook said. I'll just forget about it. I'll literally just forget about it for a while so that I can keep writing until I get something that I'm satisfied with. I'm pretty interested in satisfying myself. <laughs> so I guess that what that means is that I want you to like it, I want you to care about it, I want you to respond to it, but if I'm satisfied with a draft, that's probably where I will, I will end up with it. Does that happen that often? It happens. For sure it happens. Anything else about that? Will you talk a little bit about your, uh, your process in terms of start to finish? Um, do you have a time when you write each day, or do you work in spurts? I work in spurts. I don't have a time that I write each day. I work in spurts. I sometimes work in very long spurts so that I can, I can write every day for a month straight if I have it. I can let it sit for three or four months and just make notes, little scribbles. I keep a notebook of, of tiny stuff all the time. So little scratches of conversation that occur to me, little overheard words that interest me. So there's always something. I also have, when I'm making a play, I have, I'm sure a lot of you have experienced this in some way, I have this experience of I'm, I'm working on the play whether I'm sitting down with it or not. So it's in the back of my brain. So I'm walking down the street, I'm with my mom, I'm doing the, the dinner, whatever I'm doing, but in the back of my brain, I'm working on that next scene, I'm working on solving that scene. So often when I sit down, the scene is already there. Um, but it's because I'm, I'm consciously in touch with it as I go along. And a complete play that's, say, two hours long, how many words is that? <laughs> I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah, I forget about the words. Um, that's for with me, there's a lot of words, yeah. so yeah, I get lost in them. But it's, it's, you know, it's probably about 120 pages, 110 pages, something like that. Double space, something like that. Yeah, but I tend to always think my plays are shorter than they actually are. My friends are always reminding me that that's case. Yes? Sorry, must be. No, that's good. <laughs> Do you have favorite playwrights that, that have different processes 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you could share. Yes, I, I do. Um, so my favorite playwrights, the playwrights that influenced me the most when I started and continue to influence me over time, are Samuel Beckett and Dylan Thomas, even though Dylan Thomas only wrote one. It was a great fucking play. Um, <laughs> Lorraine Hansberry is a, is a favorite playwright of mine. But I would not say that my work is anything like those guys' work. I was reading, uh, it, the Paris Review did a book a few years ago of interviewing playwrights about their process. And I've never thought very much about Neil Simon. And I read his process and I said, oh my god, that's my fucking process. That was very surprising that Neil Simon's process and my process lined up so close together. I never would have thought such a thing. Um, so that that's a nice surprise. I, I have two playwrights that I've worked with, they're a brother and sister in Chicago, um, that I've worked with from the very beginning. And Bryn is the man's name. He writes very much from this intuitive place, always first, always, always first. And that influences me. I am influenced by his work in that way. Jenny is, is his sister, and she writes always from this completely sculpted, 10 lines, a scene is 20 lines, it's 14 lines, you know, it's mathematical almost. Um, very hard for her to get them out. Her plays are really, really short. Um, I find that very fascinating and interesting, probably because our process is so contradictory. So when she comes into a rehearsal, she gives you exactly the 10 lines and there will be no more, and none will come out. <laughs> when I come into the rehearsal, I'll give you 300 lines and it will change a lot. Um, yes? Did you have something? Seal, did you have a question? Impetigo? No. Um, artistic impetigo is the thing. When I was a kid, we had impetigo all the time. Yeah, so I have um, nine sisters and four brothers, and we grew up in a really tiny house, you know, so um, there was an attic and there was two bedrooms, and, but we lived near a lake. So we spent basically um, May through September in the lake, uh, and our mother would just said, go to the lake. She couldn't. She couldn't have us there all the time, so we were always in the lake. So somebody was always getting a patigo and always giving it to somebody else, and then we'd all have to stay home, and no one could go anywhere, so we'd be sitting festering in our patigo. So patigo comes up a lot. That's a good question. No one's ever asked me. <laughs> Did you have something? Yes. Uh, consciously is what I said, yeah. But it's always ticking away back there. Um, I've got two right now that are ticking away. And I've actually only written a single scene from both of them. I haven't written that much. But I'm beginning to know a, bu- a bunch more that I want from them. So when I have the time, I'll sit down and I'll go. After, after I leave here, I'll go home for a few days, and then I'm going to the Catskills to upstate New York for a writing residency, and I'll have two weeks of just writing with no phone and no friends, and that's, I'll, I'll kick a bunch out during that time. Yes? I just wanted to observe that it sounds like you tell your eternal editor to go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That phrase gets well used in my opinion. Yes. I live alone, which is probably for the best. <laughs> Anybody else, anything else? You know, I, I, I'm happy to talk about these things more in detail if anybody wants to do that over the next couple of days. And I'm teaching that class on the weekend if anybody's taking that, where we'll delve into it. Yes? I have a question. So you talked about process, and you said you write in 
months and the years, and, and I'm wondering that in terms of, so you write it and then it goes to stage, and sometimes you're acting also, mm-hmm. and so you have a lot of different roles yeah. in terms of your writing, and then you teach. Yes. And, and so I'm just, I'm wondering if you can talk at all about how those things all fit together. The thing that gets in the way the most, and I didn't used to think this, but now I do, is the teaching. Because the teaching is outward. It's giving out. It's, it's my attention is all on your work. It's all on helping you solve the problems. I like teaching, enjoy it. Um, but it's the thing that takes me the furthest away from my own work. So I need to build in breaks from the teaching. The acting in plays, especially in my own plays, seems to feed the play. Directing someone else's play seems to feed my playwriting. Um, so those things, those things coexist really well. And, and the, it's the teaching that takes me out, takes me away. So there's a, so now I have to strategize. And so before I taught a lot, I just sit down and write whenever I felt like it. And now I have to strategize and go, oh, you're gonna need this time in the fall. You're gonna need, to need this time in the summer. Don't fill it up, because you're gonna need it for the writing to happen. Yeah, one of the most frustrating things, I'm sure all of you have experienced this, is I've got it going, I've got it by the tail, I'm in it, and then I've got to go to fucking work. <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yes, sir? Uh, I was a student at the University of Chicago. Uh-huh. James O'Reilly, director of Fourth Theater. Oh, yeah. And I saw quite a few uh, introductions. He was the best team player I have ever <laughs> seen in my life. Yeah, he was really good at that. Did he ever approve? It's a very good question. He liked my band. He liked the band. I played a character, played a character in the band. He liked that, although he thought the instrument should shut up and just so he could just listen to me. Um, but he did like the band. He he didn't see much of my own work because he died, um, but he was encouraging of it. Um, he liked theater where there was a, there was a lot of language and story, and that's what I like to do. He would see work by some of my siblings, and he'd say, oh, that's too athletic. Everybody's jumping around. And then he'd go out in the lobby and smoke a cigarette, and now watch the end. Um, but yeah, yeah, he, he, we were good with each other. When he died, we were, we were in a good place. Did you have a question? Yes, I just wanted to ask, uh, in your collaborative work, have there been moments when it's become very contentious? Yes. Usually only once. <laughs> you know, in other words, what I mean is that if there's a lot of contention in the collaboration, I usually don't work with that person again. Um, maybe it's mutual agreement. It's certainly my preference. The person that I've worked with the most is Jenny Magnus, and she and I have been working together now for 28 years. Um, and we were once a couple for the first 10 or 12 years of that. And there was a lot of contention then. We're not that anymore. And so there's a lot less contention. We see things very differently. We tend to really disagree in rehearsal, and yet we keep going back to working together. So that's unusual um, for me. I usually like to have a good time. <laughs> you know. So if I'm fighting with you too much about the play, I'm probably not having a fucking good time. But I do think this, and making of any play, there's always going to be difficulty. And I think what age has given me is I can go, oh, you are really mad at me now. I get that. Yeah, could have been me being really mad at you. Tomorrow maybe I will be. But I can, I can wait through the period of contention. So I'm, I'm more able to do that now. Yes? Um, so I'm used to thinking of a playwright where 
in your life, or how did you come to breaking away from just the writing to the performance? Mm. Um, you get intrigued by things, you know. So I, I did Pinter for the first time when I was 56. And I did it because somebody said, oh, you could never do Pinter, pretty literally. Um, a friend of mine said, you, you, you don't have the actors to do Pinter. You don't know how to, you can't do that. And I said, well, why not? So I, I took that little challenge, that little resentment, and it spurred me into reading Pinter. I thought, I really like Pinter. I think I will do Pinter. And so I did Pinter, and it was really difficult. It was really, really difficult. And at some point in the process of making it, I did the caretaker. At some point in the process of making it, I had to let go of a lot of what I, what I thought I needed in order to make it work, and just gruelingly force myself to learn it and go through. It's very difficult to learn. So that challenge was good. Um, I directed a Sarah Kane play, 448 Psychosis, and I really hated the play before I directed it. I would read it in class, and my students kept saying, Sarah Kane, Sarah Kane, and I would read it, and why do you like this? Play. Why do you like her? And so because of that, I made a point to study her work. And then I found a way that I could approach 448 Psychosis. And so, again, let go of a lot of my assumptions. Um, um, contempt prior to investigation is a saying that I really like. Contempt prior to investigation. Um, and as I most of us, I'll speak for myself, I have that. Oh, I assume it's this, I assume it's that. I once hated Wallace Shawn. I assumed he was this. Now I love Wallace Shawn. Um, so what I find that, that if I look deeply at something, and, it's, and theatrically they're doing something very differently than I am, or than I've come to expect from the story, that is now intriguing rather than um, irritating. <laughs> and so then I'll make a decision. I want to do that. That's interesting to me. I want to do that. I'm doing Ionesco for the first time um, in the fall. And I've always enjoyed reading him, but I've never had the slightest interest in doing him on stage. Um, and I find him very annoying to read. I find there's lots of flaps and flops. Um, but once I get to the stage, it'll be fun to, fun to see how he plays. I think that's an answer to your question. Are we good? Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, on the writing days, yes. how many hours Oh, at the computer? I almost never sit at the computer first. I almost always write um, in, in notebooks like this. I write longhand, um, but I write really fast longhand. Um, and when I sit, probably a, a, a normal writing stint for me is about four hours. Not, not much longer than that. But I can have two or three of them in a 24-hour period. And then I usually type into the computer is, is a second draft for me. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening.